Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. Tonight, Fox in the Coop, the techno-thief, and the FBI. Earlier this week, a U.S. district judge sentenced a man to 33 months in prison for stealing the secrets of the Pentium computer chip from the Intel Corporation and giving it to a competitor, Advanced Micro Devices. The story is interesting because of the manner in which the information was stolen in the first place, but it is really interesting because at a news conference before his trial, the man claimed that he was an intelligence agent. This, this um, need to discredit the idea of progress is, is perhaps uh, best expressed uh, with Nietzsche. He was an extremely reactionary philosopher and insisted that the bourgeoisie or the ruling class must crush the working class and crush any idea of equality. It's very telling that he is possibly the most influential philosopher for the postmodernists, in particular for Foucault. Now, of course, most of the philosophers um, of, if you like, or most of the what we call bourgeois philosophers are in reality actually petty bourgeois in their own personal backgrounds. And this uh, social position makes them perfectly suited for this role of developing a, a deeply pessimistic philosophy. Because in general, the petty bourgeoisie is acutely aware of the horrors of capitalism and they find its culture, uh, typically, especially petty bourgeois and intellectuals, they find capitalism's culture crude, you know, and uh, distasteful. Now, I want to discuss the um, Frankfurt School briefly because I think that they are very influential over postmodernism as well. Now, if you study Marxism at university, you'll probably be told that the Frankfurt School are Marxists. Uh, but in reality, they, they are not Marxists at all, as I think I will explain. And although they are officially not considered postmodernists at all, the, the similarity in their ideas, uh, and in particular the main themes, uh, is, is really striking. And the Frankfurt School also highlights one of the other major uh, causes of postmodernism, which is the horrors of capitalism in the 20th century, and specifically the failure of various revolutions. So just as the failure of the German Revolution was hugely influential over the Frankfurt School, so the failure of revolutions such as uh, those in 68 are hugely influential for the postmodernists. Now, just like the postmodernists, the main theme of the Frankfurt School is extreme pessimism, a contempt for the working class, and uh, basically a denial of the possibility of human emancipation. And this flows from their position in society because the Frankfurt School, just like the postmodernists, is a purely academic phenomenon. They, at no point did any of the members of the Frankfurt School join uh, a political party or participate in the struggle of the working class. Even though all of them were German and came of age in the middle of the German Revolution. The closest thing I could find is that Marcuse, who is one of its most famous members, briefly joined the SPD at the end of the German Revolution. In other words, he joined a reformist party precisely at the point when it had just betrayed the German working class. It was very, very clear that their position in society and their, the, the dependence they had on, on money from the bourgeois state obviously restricted what they would and wouldn't say and think. And it gave them a kind of um, a, yeah, a contempt for the working class, basically. 
And this is the same with the, with the postmodernists, which is equally a thoroughly academic phenomenon. And what, I always find, what I always find amusing about this is that the postmodernists emphasize that all institutions, even institutions we'd never thought of before, have um, power structures that are contained with them and inherently are oppressive. Except apparently the university, which obviously paid their wages. Now, um, I go on to talk directly about the main postmodernists now. As I've said, they, they completely rejected uh, any ideology of progress or belief in human emancipation in really the exact same way as the Frankfurt School. And they see, just like the Frankfurt School, they also see oppression everywhere. And they are also define themselves in this respect um, against what they term modernism. And this is, again, is similar to the Frankfurt School, because the Frankfurt School, of course, sort of ignore the Marxist criticism, if you like, of the ideas of the liberal ideas of the Enlightenment. And similarly, the postmodernists, um, for them, liberalism and Marxism are the same thing. They ignore completely that there's a difference between the two, because for them, the two of them are basically modernist, which means both of them believe in science and the possibility of human progress. And they caricature Marxists as if we think that with each passing year, every year just gets better and better, as, as if we don't understand that the bourgeoisie is a reactionary class and will use technology and science to oppress humanity so long as they exist. But what, what all of these ideologies do reflect, which is true in a sense, is that, that progress has stalled, yes, but it is progress under capitalism. They blur over the class distinctions and just treat that as if that is you know, sums up humanity's lot forever. There, there will be no progress and all humans will oppress other humans. And what they, they, they describe this as, uh, in, in Leotard's words, Leotard was a, a um, prominent postmodernist, they describe this attitude as incredulity towards meta-narratives. Meta-narrative means, in, in their, as they, this is obviously their term, not ours, but it means any ideology or theory that attempts to explain a broad process rather than just small isolated phenomena. So, so the philosophical basis of their rejection of, of the possibility of progress lies in this, this, this rejection of the ability of humans to understand and to explain um, phenomena. They have another word for this which is essentialist. So for them any theory is essentialist if it states that it understands the underlying reason or in other words the essence of a given phenomenon so they would argue that it is essentialist when marx and engels state that the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggles or to emphasize the centrality of the productive forces in determining the development of human society what they would say is that it's very naive and arrogant to think that we can explain such complex phenomena as society. And so for them, you know, um, modernism, in other words, liberalism and Marxism, which they lump together, uh, both of them have this arrogance of, of, and, and this naivety of thinking that we're just going to, we've understood history and, and we can explain it and we know that how we're going to liberate ourselves. I can understand, of course, why some people find this a compelling argument. Because, of course, society is indeed very, very complex. And, of course, a lot of uh, people do make bad generalizations and, you know, have, you know, they, they don't back their generalizations up sufficiently, basically. And, indeed, many old theories of how humanity 
Okay. Good. All right. So, uh, welcome, Bill. It's uh, oh, great. Um, I guess we'll we'll just start the interview. I'm I'm ready to go if you are. All right. So, um, yeah. Welcome, uh, Bill. Uh, obviously, uh, I'm Oscar uh, from the from the MTT, and uh, we are wanted to speak to you about a couple of things. You've obviously got a really interesting background. You uh, <laughs> not uh, apart from what we're discussing tonight. We've obviously got. Let me just check my notes here. Uh, obviously, uh, we've got the science, computers, uh, extinction, atheism, a lot of fields that you've written about uh, and yeah. you know, extensively, not just on, on, a, on a light basis. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but we're, we're going into the, the light, the very light topic of Cold War industrial spying. <laughs> oh, okay. The easy one, right? The easy one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> the, the uncontroversial one. Um, so yeah, um, I think if we could talk about maybe your background first, before we go into, uh, the details of, of what happened in the, the late eighties and early nineties, if we could well, talk about where you were born and, um, yeah, and yeah. Sort of your I, can, early- I can summarize that relatively fast. I was born in Argentina, Buenos Aires. And, uh, when I was young, about six years old, uh, my family went to the United States and we lived there for like seven years. Then we came back to Argentina. And later on in life, uh, I married, came back to the United States, um, started working. Well, I had uh, other jobs in between, but I started working at Advanced Micro Devices, um, you know, got my degree, uh, got into engineering. And uh, at that point in time, that's when I decided to um, share some information. <laughs> with the world, <laughs> with the Soviet bloc specifically. Brilliant. And, yeah. And uh, before that, I uh, had been uh, in Argentina, I had been a telephone operator before I went to the States. That's in a nutshell what it is. After that, you know, uh, well, I got involved with this uh, issue, the spying issue, uh, mm-hmm. turned myself over to the agencies and uh, they started working with me for about two years. And eventually, uh, the uh, companies I was working for, in this case, Intel, found out about me. They were a little upset that the FBI didn't notify of me, uh, didn't notify them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they told me I needed to cooperate in an internal investigation. Mm-hmm. I did not. They fired me. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I took some of their technology to South America and began to pedal it around. Okay. That's it. So there you have it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've given us a, a, an introduction, an overview of the of the whole story. And to be honest, I think if we're going to, what we'd like to do is maybe go into some of the detail of, of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, just to, yeah, yeah, obviously, great <clears throat> summary there. But obviously, I think you became, uh, you joined the Communist Party, Communist Party of Argentina at 21. Is that right? So I was around 21 years old. Yeah. Uh, One of my fellow workers uh, took me there. You know, he he heard that he he realized I was, you know, leaning towards the left Uh and uh, he decided to make me an offer. I couldn't refuse. He said, do you want to join the party? I said, yeah. And he contacted me after that and we worked together. Right. And so, I mean, from what I've read, your family background, your your family, uh, I think it was your father, perhaps. Sort of a Peronist background, a bit right wing. Uh, used to talk quite positively about you know time in, in the 1940s and stuff. 
So quite unusual a background to, to, to become a communist. Uh, yeah, my folks were not communists. Um, they were Peronists from Juan Peron. And um, the whole family, really, the extended family, all of them were Peronists. And uh, so, uh, in a way, yeah, it was uh, a little departure from, uh, from you know, from uh, where my folks came from. In fact, uh, my grandmother, uh, she suspected something, and she told me, "Don't get involved in politics. It's so dirty." She had been, she had been a communist in the because she she was uh, in Russia in the days of the Tsar, and uh, my grandfather was Russian. And he he was uh, in the military for the Tsar uh, during uh, uh, many years, and he fought in all three armies. He fought for the Tsar, he fought for the white uh, for the Red Army, and then for the White Army. <laughs> wow. Okay. And, and when, when did they, he, when they when came did back to Argentina, they hated communism. I see. So when did so, he immigrate from uh, from Russia? Uh, 1929. Uh, he, yeah, uh, no, he came in 1927. My grandmother came in 1929. I see. Okay. Well, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Okay. So fought in all yeah. three of the armies. From St. Petersburg. Okay. 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 Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So that explains the blonde no. hair and the blue eyes. More interesting is his story. Special episode on that one. Your, your, yeah, yeah. your grandfather's history, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. my grandmother was Polish. Uh, so was my mother, for that matter. She came when she was five years old to Argentina. So they were Polish on her on my mother's side, on the um, on my mother's mother's side, and on my grandmother's side. Mm. Uh, my grandfather, he was Russian, and on the other side, they were Germans. So we okay. got the Germans, the Polish, and the Russians. That's where right. I come. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Got it. Got it. Okay, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, okay, so yeah, let, let's go to when you you mentioned. Obviously, uh, you joined the CP Argentina, um, and then you went to the states, back to the states to start working yeah, with AMD. Yeah, uh, we went to the states uh, with my wife in what was it, nineteen seventy. 1970s, July 1977. Okay. Uh, we went we to the States. With, yeah, carry on. Yeah, we, we went to the States and uh, we were illegal aliens. We had no, in, in other words, I had no no uh, no social security specifically. That was a big headache in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had to work with fake uh, social security numbers, worked in electronics. I worked uh, also with the Mexicans out there in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I worked for Del Monte Corporation that uh, makes all this food stuff that they sell throughout the world, the canned foods and so on. So I worked for them, did odd jobs, and finally ended up relatively quickly at AMD. AMD, and, and then you, you, you worked up the chain, uh, you know, got promoted fast. And then yeah. once you once you'd been put into a um, sort of higher position, for lack of a better term, this is when you started deciding that you wanted to share or uh, give some of this technology to to the Eastern Bloc to the Cubans. That's true. Yeah. In other words, I was uh, what I was doing at the time was I was collecting uh, a lot of the information. Uh, Xeroxing, uh, getting information which I thought was important, um, and I, and I said, you know, I could share this with the Soviet bloc, but I and I said, you know, I could go through Cuba, which you know that was my the thing I had with Cuba, right, with Fidel Castro specifically. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, this technology is no good for Fidel; it's mm -hmm. good for the Soviet bloc, but I can give it to the Soviet bloc through Cuba. 
And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> My idea right. came through. <laughs> right, right. So obviously, uh, you know, the ordinary person, uh, we obviously watch, we watch lots of uh, spy films, uh, you know, 007 and, and uh, you know, James Bourne and all that kind of stuff. Um, how do you make contact with the Cuban spies? How does this happen? How did it happen for you? Well, for me, I approached them. I went to the Cuban embassy in Buenos Aires and said I had uh, something to offer the uh, Cubans. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was technology. And um, the uh, consul who talked to me, right, he, he couldn't believe his ears. Here was this Yankee-looking guy, <laughs> uh, spoke perfect English, and he said, what the? And I spoke to him in Spanish, obviously. And uh, so he, he was stunned, and he didn't believe me, or maybe he did. I don't know what happened, but he did not report my presence. And about, uh, what was it, about... Uh, well, several months later, about a year, or over a year later, I went to the Cuban interest section at the Czech uh, embassy in Washington, D.C., and I did the same thing. I gave the guy a presentation, uh, showed him wafers, uh, which is what we use in the industry, uh, showed him some of the manuals that I could provide them with. You know, it took a little bit of uh, some of the things that I could provide them with. And six months later, someone approached me in Sunnyvale. I was living in Sunnyvale, California. Mm -hmm. And they approached me and they said, yeah, we're interested in uh, working with you. We need for you to go to Mexico. And that's when we started. <laughs> see, I see, so I, I see. twice. <laughs> okay. So just, just for clarity, uh, the embassy, I assume, is in, in, you flew into the embassy in Washington? Where was the Cuban no, embassy? The, the first one was in Buenos Aires. I, I was on vacation in Buenos Aires. I went to the Cuban embassy in Buenos Aires. Hmm. Then, since that, nothing happened with that for over a year, I right. decided to get try the second time. I we went through the embassy. There, there was no embassy. There was an interest section within the Czechoslovakian embassy in Washington. That's where I went. Got it. Got it. Got it. OK. Yeah, actually, that is an interesting point. So the first uh, Cuban representative sort of brushed you off and didn't really consider think that you being a, um, you know, an English speaking uh, sort of more, uh, for lack of a better term, gringo looking um, <laughs> individual wouldn't have the ideological reasoning or, or, or sort of uh, the ideological element didn't make sense to him. Is that is that right? I'm not sure what went through his mind, but uh, what happened was later on, I found out he was recalled to Cuba and I think he went through un underwent some psychological testing. You know what I mean? Oh, OK, <laughs> so he was he was uh, penalized for that. I see. I see. So when you started, uh, they, they said you, you, you want to go. They, they want you to go to Mexico um, and had you know, sort of start transferring the technology across in Mexico. Uh, how, how did that happen? I mean, what, what did you take? Did you take pictures? Uh, what, what sort of means did you employ to sort of get the tech across to them in Mexico? Well, uh, the first um, encounter, it was just to meet, to greet us, to interview me, that sort of thing, right? So the first encounter, we took absolutely nothing. All we had to do was get there to Mexico. We, got, we met at a place, a, a movie theater called the uh, San Cos. Cine San Cosmos, uh, or San Cosme, or the street is named San Cosme in the, in the movie theater, San Cosmos. Anyways, we met at this theater, and it was just for introduction to find out why I was doing it. You know, they interviewed me, essentially. 
Okay, it was right. like debriefing or whatever you want to call it. And that was just the first encounter. Then uh, from that point on, almost every three months, two, two to three months, we would meet uh, primarily at the border towns, not in Mexico City, but at the border towns between Texas and Mexico. Uh, for example, Ciudad Acuña or Piedras Negras, these are on, on their side, right? Or Laredo, right? And uh, Matamoros, primarily the, the border towns. Mm-hmm. And we would meet there. I would go with my car so I could take lots of material in my trunk. When I went into Mexico, nobody ever checked me. So mm-hmm. I went in there. I would give it uh, to my uh, contact there and mm-hmm. at a hotel. He would take it in, in a bag that he brought. And uh, there, there was a limo. Um, it was a um, from the embassy. So it was uh, a diplomatic uh, limo, and right. so they could touch that, and so the, then he he could uh, go back to Mexico City with all this stuff, and from there it would be taken by luggage into Cuba. Are we talking about like a, an actual, sh- just a, a stretch limo, or just a, a, a sort of normal, sort of more diplomatic? It was, uh, it was a, um, you know, I don't recall very well now. All I know is black. I know very little okay. about cars. Okay. But uh, uh, it was a big car, you know. Right. It was a, a limo, but a big car. Okay, I see. So I just see. I just the image in my mind would be quite uh, odd to have the Cuban embassy driving around in a, in, a, in a sort of very stretched limo. But I guess if it was yeah, but the issue, a critical issue was it was had diplomatic diplomatic uh, plates. That that was the key. That's why it had to be like visible. So if the police stopped them, they said, "No, we're we're diplomats." I see. I see. And they couldn't do okay. anything too. Okay. So, so primarily then through hotels. So arriving yeah. into hotels and transferring uh, into diplomatic vehicles. Okay. I see. Interesting. Okay. And what tech? I, I know you said that. Yes, you were you were trying to get this to the Soviet Union uh, more so than the Cubans. So, what kind of tech? Um, uh, actually, let me just clarify that a bit further. Did the, the Soviets ever tell you what they wanted you to share, or did you just give? And then I just gave. I just gave. The, uh, the Soviets never contacted me. They worked through the Cubans, and the Cubans did not tell them who I was. In other words, uh, the Soviets had never knew who, who it was that was giving them the technology. Uh, but they realized the technology was very, very important. And uh, the Cubans just said, told them that uh, they had a man on the inside. And uh, in fact, they were um, they were blessed <laughs> by uh, who was it? Vladimir. Uh, uh, can't remember his last name now. But uh, one of the guys that later on would overthrow um, Gorbachev. Uh, yes. He was Kuchkov. Uh, that was in it. Kuchkov. Uh, you know, he he told the Cubans that they had uh, done quite a coup uh, because the information that they were receiving was very high, very useful to them, to their engineers, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I gave them really high and low tech. The low tech would end up in Cuba because they were trying to develop their own semiconductor industry. Mm-hmm. And the high tech ended up in East Germany and uh, Russia. Uh, mm-hmm. So Union. I see. I see. OK, so, yeah, so, so there wasn't really much instruction from from the other side as to what to send. But you just said no, but, uh, but I knew essentially what they needed. <laughs> right. Uh, I knew quite well what they needed. OK, I see. I see. So, yeah, I, I guess this now in, in the story is where um, we come to uh, you actually going to Cuba, um, if I'm not mistaken. And because 
the operation that you're running, like you just mentioned, was so uh, uh, valued, was was so uh, important. Uh, the, the, the stuff they were receiving was, you know, really good stuff. Yeah. And so they requested to let you go to Cuba and, and even meet Fidel Castro. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that's true. But uh, what happened was that uh, they were developing their own technology and they needed some help, some pointers uh, in Cuba. Uh, that was one issue. The other one, they wanted to train me on phot photography and a couple other things uh, mm -hmm. so that they were worried that, you know, maybe I would get caught because I was taking too many chances. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they wanted to give me some advice. <laughs> and so th and they gave me some gadgets as well. Um, yeah, yeah, actually, these gadgets. Uh, um, what? Yeah. What did they give you? Well, here, this is a notebook. Can you see it? This is a notebook, okay? And yeah. uh, it's got a, uh, a uh, place on the inside here, okay? Mm -hmm. And you can put wafers, you can put things and walk through the uh, guard shack. And it's low tech, but very useful, very useful. Right. And you have little, de um, little devices like, you know, this is, a, um, this is a pen. It's a recorder. I don't know if you can see the cable. I, I can see that, yeah. Okay, so you, you plug this into a little recorder that looks like this. Okay. I don't know I if you see it. That. I can see you. No, I got you. And, uh, and so you can record things. Uh, you have also what is called a pickup cable. You can put it on a phone and record. Okay. So you have all these little gadgets which uh, were really not that high tech, but very, very useful. <laughs> so just to and, cover, uh, the, 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 the pen microphone is also from the Cubans? No, no, the pen I got on my own, but I mean, they, they gave me a jacket, for example, uh, yes. that had also a Velcro uh, split so mm -hmm. that you could put things in there and walk out. They gave me things essentially that I could take inside the company without mm -hmm. any risk. They, they gave me a camera, a small camera. I don't have that one anymore. Um, uh, the Velcro uh, jacket, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, and uh, and then the, this um, the notebook. Uh, the notebook. Uh, nice. That that's essentially what they gave me. The other stuff I got on my own, but you know these are the things that I was using in those days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you needed them to record uh, people, you know. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I think this is something that. Yeah, I mean, now we have obviously smartphones and our phones have got built-in recorders and you can just have them in your pocket. But back then, I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, 1994 at best. 80s, uh, 80s, 80s first. 80s. Yeah, I'm yeah. talking about 86, 87, 88, in the yeah. 90s as well, right? The early yeah. 90s. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, actually, we'll come back to that um, element of the story. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so... You then um, went to Cuba, obviously, for this, this training uh, and to meet them, as you explained. Um, and, 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 Fidel where, wanted, and Fidel wanted to meet the uh, people who were helping him uh, disinterestedly. Mm, mm, mm. Because uh, they weren't paying me. There, uh, there was no money involved. It was right. all ideological. All ideological, right. Yeah. Um, and as far as I understand the story, this is where... Uh, you start interacting with uh, Cohen and Rolando Trujillo. Um, so, uh, so, so they were Cuban agents, but yeah. this is where they convince you to sort of uh, change sides, for lack of a better term. Um, this is where we begin with the whole business of the, the double agents, the CIA. Uh, yeah, so let's go into that. 
Well, uh, I go to Cuba and uh, uh, I was already changing my mind about maybe 1987, 88 in the days of Gorbachev. I was already drifting out of communism uh, for different reasons. When I go to Cuba, you know, and I saw what they were doing or how the country was run, well, I was not very satisfied with that because uh, I thought that there were people with lots of privileges and the rest of the country had no privileges. In other words, if you were tied to people in the government, you were part of the Communist Party, well, then you had perks. <laughs> and the rest of the country just had to eat what, what is called boniato, which is a potato that's grown on the island. Uh, so, And food was a, a big problem as well in those days. Uh, mm. In fact, I still think it is today. But mm. the point here is that, you know, I didn't like what I saw. And I said, you know, what am I contributing to? Is, is this what I'm working for? I'm helping these people. And, and here you have these people with privileges and so on. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it turns out that they caught my... They read my mind, okay, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak, partly because, you know, I did make a lot of fun of a lot of uh, a lot of the contradictions that I found on the country in the country. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they decided, you know, next time I went there, um, which was in 92, um, they decided to turn me around. And the way they did that is through Pepe Cohen and uh, Trujillo. Mm -hmm. um, Roli, we were, we called him Roli, and Roli and uh, Pepe convinced me that they were they were dissatisfied with their country as well, and they said, "Look, what we need for you to do is to go to the CIA, and we're going to pass information to you uh, through you to the CIA, and uh, so the CIA can help you know overthrow this this government." That was the story, and uh, since I was a pretty good friend at the time of uh, Pepe, of Cohen, uh, I decided to do it against the uh, voting of my wife. She voted against. But I went to the CIA. I turned myself in. I, you know, they told me, just tell them everything you did. And I said, they're going to put me in prison. They said, no, they're going to work with you. And that's exactly what happened. I told the CIA exactly what I was doing, what I had been doing over the years, and that now there was a group of Cubans who were in the intelligence service that could provide lots of information from the interior ministry to the uh, CIA. And right. the CIA liked that idea, and so they started working with me through the FBI, because the FBI handles counterespionage, right? Right, right. Through the I FBI. see. I see. I mean, in, in a sense, I mean, uh, obviously with, with Pepe, Roldi, the CIA uh, and, and obviously the Cuban state itself. I mean, you became a bit of a chess piece in a bit of a big game between the Cubans and the CIA. Exactly. Exactly. You always become a chess piece when you're, uh, you know, when you're doing that kind of work. No doubt about it. If they have to sacrifice you, they will also sacrifice you if you're a small pawn, uh, you know, maybe to save the knight or the bishop in your chess game. Uh, they yes. sacrifice a pawn and turns out you're the pawn. And right. I know this also because they gave me information and they were sacrificing people who were low, low level people who were helping the Cuban governments. They were sacrificing them to get a big, you know, to to get the uh, CIA to bite the uh, the worm. Right. The, mm. the uh, hook. Mm, 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 mm. Well, well, if you could explain a bit more, because it is quite a complicated um, uh, set of relationships where uh, it's potentially the case that. Obviously, Pepe and Roldi were CIA assets when they met you and then potentially uh, tried to get you to then turn so that they, you could be a CIA agent. I, I don't know. It, it seems to me that there's 
there's obviously lots of moving parts to that. Well, what happened was uh, Pepe and Rolly were not CIA assets no, under no circumstances. They were working for the Cuban government as the interior ministry. Uh, in other words, their secret service, their FBI, uh, working through them, try to convince me to go to the CIA, not because they were going to give me good information. In fact, they did give me quite a bit of good information. But within that information, they gave some rotten information. Okay. And so, so the issue was they wanted the CIA to believe the rotten information. Okay. okay. So, for example, uh, I'll just give you an example. Uh, Joey and Johnny, you know, they're spies. Okay. And the CIA said, hey, that's good information. But it turns out they said, well, Tommy is also a spy. And they, mm -hmm. what do you mean, Tommy? Tommy? You mean this rich guy? He's working for, for Fidel Castro? Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of thing. And so it's like, Jesus Christ, we got to investigate this guy. You know, that's that was the trick. Right. OK. He's due. <laughs> see, I see. OK, OK. No, that, that, that makes more sense to me now. OK, yeah. I see. So. Yeah, I mean, this is you said where, where the FBI, the CIA started using you through the FBI uh, to, to play out this, this sort of chess game with against the Cubans. Exactly. Um, and this is where at least from your perspective, you were double-crossed, so to speak, by the FBI. So how did that happen? Uh, it wasn't that the FBI double-crossed me. The way it worked was um, I started working at Intel. And the CIA, uh, the FBI, they served as my references. <laughs> it turns out the uh, Intel did not check the references, or I don't know exactly what happened on Intel's side, or maybe they did check, and uh, and the FBI said, oh, yeah, he's okay, you know, whatever. And uh, I, I started working at Intel. And so as long as that was going, uh, no problem. The FBI started working with me. They were, uh, I, they were passing information from Cuba through me to the FBI and then to the CIA. And meanwhile, I was working at Intel. When Intel finds out about me, that's when the FBI cleaned its hands and said, uh-oh, you know, we don't know this guy. <laughs> I see, I see. Okay, but okay. It turns out that since I was recording them all along, which they did not know about, they were trapped as well. So we were, we all fell. <laughs> the, I see, okay. The FBI so, agents as well as me. <laughs> so, it's, so some of the FBI agents were also uh, charged with something in, in relation to this? Uh, the reason they did not get charged is we never went to trial. I pled guilty. I pled guilty because there were no laws to try my case. That's that's really what happened. But what they did, they went after my wife. So 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 they they they. In other words, it's one of those issues where they went after my wife, and I said, you know, I'm not going to put her in prison just just to win the case. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when they went after her. Uh, that's when I had to plead guilty. And they decided, OK, look, we'll give you a low uh, prison sentence, but we don't touch your wife. Mm -hmm. and, and that was the deal. And that's mm -hmm. what we agreed to. And that's why I pled guilty. So and, and they also knew that if we went to trial, the FBI would be drawn in. For example, here I have. I don't know if you see these. I can see them. I can see them. Yeah. Yeah. What have we got? These, there? Are, these are money orders, one issued to my wife and the other one to me. And um, well, one of, I got them upside down. Uh, one of them is um, uh, uh, one of them is in the name of Frank Pettyjohn, okay? okay. And okay. the other one, and the other one is in the name of John Grant. Okay. And John Grant was the real name of this guy, and he gave as an address the FBI office. Okay. This was okay. a money order to pay me. Okay. And I never cashed these checks. 
Right. And second uh, one, uh, he changed his name, even though you can see the handwriting is the same. And he changed his name and he changed his address because he didn't want to be involved, you know, if, if something happened. Right. And it turns out that I never cashed them. And then uh, just before trial, I had a um, writing expert uh, show that it was the same person who signed these two checks. And so they were going to go to prison as well. <laughs> and this was the problem uh, for, for the prosecutors. They didn't want to get the FBI agents in prison just to get me. And so I right. went out my wife. And so it was one of those issues where everybody had to give something <laughs> in because we were all trapped. That was okay. I see, but but I, I don't think this is um, just by accident. I mean, very much from your part, active, very active measures from your part. Because uh, at least in the El Crazy Chair, the the, the, the documentary that 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 uh, was made about you, um, there's the the famous uh, video camera in the oven that you, that you did. Maybe yeah. you could just explain that a bit. Well, um, they would come to my house to pay me to give me instructions to say if I had received uh, messages from Cuba, that sort of thing. And so I decided to, you know, uh, record them. And, you know, you're not going to put a camera in the kitchen and, and wait for them. So I had to hide it. And I hid it inside the uh, um, my kitchen, my, my mm -hmm. stove, and mm -hmm. I passed the uh, cable through the burner and it looked like, you know, the toaster cable. Mm -hmm. And so they never found out. And I would film them from there. I have several tapes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and ABC used one of those for their program. But the point is, I caught him, especially when he was paying me, you know, and I made sure I was sideways so that they could see that he was counting bills. <laughs> right, right, right. No, you, you, you got them. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got them real good. So uh, they had no, <laughs> it was one of those things that they would have gone together with to prison with me. Not only that, I have recordings from the CIA as well. And, uh, and so I was subpoenaing the, uh, the CIA officers, one of them from Argentina. And uh, they said, well, uh, national security. <laughs> I see. Okay, so that was their defense. <laughs> yeah, but see, if, if you put national security, that's in your favor in a trial. Because they say, well, hold it. What do you mean national security? This guy's going to prison because you guys dealt with him. You don't want to come here and testify. You don't want to be subpoenaed. Right, right, <laughs> so, right, right, uh, right. That's also in your favor. I see, I see. Interesting. You have to be careful with all those things. <laughs> so with, uh, I mean, the CIA is obviously an organization that has, you know, it's, it's a nebulous sort of shrouded, uh, scary uh, associations. And, and it does, you know, some shady things. But what was it like actually speaking to CIA agents and dealing with them? I mean, I, of course, they're human at the end of the day, but is there something else to them? Is there a particular way they operate? Is, is there something different or odd about them? Well, first of all, they're well-trained, okay? These people are college uh, graduates, so they're not just a high schooler that dropped out and say, okay, come over here and work for us. No, it doesn't work that way. These guys are very well-trained. They know how to ask questions. Um, you know, they know what they want to know. And uh, so they're very precise in in um, in how they question you, okay, mm -hmm. and what information they want from you, and that's when they know if you're lying or not, and that sort of thing. You know, they're they're pretty they're pretty good at that. Uh, FBI the same. Uh, these people are very well trained. They're not dummies. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. No, but uh, yeah, they 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 they're pretty good. You're you're working with professionals. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And I think there's something that we might have glossed over, 
with uh-huh. uh, the general discussion is just some of the technology. So I know that we mentioned that, yes, you were sending it to the Soviets, but I think arguably the most important uh, exchange or uh, transfer of technology that you uh, did is with the from the 486 chip to the Pentium. Uh, the recording of that, yeah. So if you could just explain the, the sort of technological significance of what that was, what a 486 was, and moving from that to the Pentium, what you took, uh, what you recorded, and how important was that? Well, it was a big step. Uh, you know, you have, uh, first, we were working with a 386, and uh, I was there when they made the transition from 386 to 486 to 586, 586 being the uh, Pentium. And this was a, a big uh, step because, you know, the Pentium controls missiles, controls uh, in those days, at least. You know, today mm-hmm. they probably have something a lot more sophisticated. But, you know, this was a huge step in the sense that, um, you know, these things go in, in many parts of the economy. And mm-hmm. and it was a major step over the 486. And you have both AMD and Intel working on 486, moving on to the 586, to the Pentium. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was uh, important technology, but the importance was not so much. Uh, I mean, it was important to get the masks. The, uh, you have several masks, what they're called masks. That means you have several layers. OK, and you take pictures through those masks and the masks I made available to these people. But more important than that was the process. How do you process this thing at different operations? And that's, you know, when I gave them the whole store. Essentially, that's what it happened. So, so they, you know, they they had an idea what machines were being used uh, because I gave them the manuals for these machines. Some of them were from Japan. A lot of them were from the United States manufacturers, and all this technology just went to the Soviet Union. Yeah, I see. That's, I see. that's essentially what happened. See, well, and this and, also and comes back to gotta, um, remember. You got to remember that this was over. A, you got an echo there, I guess. No, no, carry on, carry on. Okay, you have um, uh, many years in which all this technology was developed and how the machines were replaced at different operations. And I didn't only do my site, which I I was primarily what is known as a thin films engineer, which is probably the most important part of the whole process. But I already also did diffusion. I did photolithography etch. I was throughout the whole fab. And if I wasn't there, I would go there anyways and just take the uh, material, photocopy it, and all that ended up in Soviet Union. So I did a good job. I mean, after several years, they had the whole store. I see. Absolutely took the whole thing. In fact, uh, you know, you can, um, uh, one fellow, there's a fellow who came here to um, East Germany and he looked at the Stasi because the Stasi, the, uh, the uh, Germans, uh, yeah, but from the East Germans, right? right? And they collected all this stuff. And when uh, Honecker fell, you know, the uh, communist government, this guy went in there and he looked at the uh, what what the Stasi had, and he found all the information that I had given uh, the the Stasi. Oh, right. So it was right there. It was all there. Yeah, it was it, there. They made it. And and, and, <laughs> and not only the East Germans, but the Soviets also had it. Mm. You know, everybody had it. Mm, mm, mm. Cubans, East Germans, Soviets, I don't know who else, but I know those three countries had it. Right. And I think this is where particularly the the means by which you captured that tech, like the the, the, the blanks and the manuals, etc. you say, um, you, you used a video camera. And obviously at that point, the 
uh, under U.S. law, there was a, a gap where what you had done wasn't prosecutable as a, a, in a certain sense as being theft. Because what you done was copied. Yeah. In fact, uh, I had uh, four arguments. Uh, I can remember at least three. Uh, one of them is that first, Intel and AMD never patented their process. They never recorded their process. What is a patent? What is a copyright? Well, you tell the government, uh, look, this is my property. This is what I want you to protect. Mm -hmm. And then you have protection for, say, 20 years. I think it used to be 17. Now it's 20. I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not sure how their law is today, but it was patent law. These people don't patent. What they did, they have a secret process, but they want protection from the government. You see what's the issue? And uh, there was no law at the time uh, to help them because either you do a patent law and you go and patent and you have protection for 20 years after which someone else can build upon that idea or you go and do copyright if that's applicable, a song or whatever you want to copyright and mm -hmm. then it's civil. And it turns out that my case uh, fell under neither one. That was the first issue. I said, you know, I didn't steal first from Intel or AMD because what I did was copy and I copied stuff that wasn't theirs. That's mm -hmm. that, that was one argument. The other argument is that I didn't steal. I was I was hit with the National Stolen Properties Act. And I said, stolen, what do you mean steal? I, if I steal your shoe, you can't use it. But if, if I copy uh, I don't know, a, a, a TV program. Well, you can copy it also. You, you know, we can all copy it. We can all see it at the same time. So yeah. intangibles are different than tangibles. Okay. And so <laughs> this is where the problem was for them, because how would they prove that I stole? They had to prove stealing and they couldn't prove stealing. Mine was copy. And if it's copy, it's copyright. And it's a civil law, not a criminal law. Right. And then you have the issue, then you have the issue that, um, you know, um, uh, first, uh, it's not Intel property or AMD's property because they didn't patent it. Then I copied, and then the National Stolen Properties Act, with which they which they applied to me, is when you steal property from the government. If you steal from a company, that's mm -hmm. that's a that's a criminal case, a state criminal case. That's a local case. You know, it's mm -hmm. like if you steal a banana, the the federal government's not going to come after you. And so nice. the question is, I did not steal from the U.S. government, so <laughs> they were they were screwed from every point of view. Right. So you, 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 yeah, you fell right into a, a perfect spot that was exactly at the time uh, <laughs> as we we're entering the sort of proper digital age, uh, which was out there. So so and that's when they made the Industrial Espionage Act of 1996 in your uh, because of your in your honor, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I was named in that in the uh, debates in Congress. They mentioned my case. They said, look, this guy did this a couple months ago. We need to change the law. And since then, yeah, now anyone who uh, so-called steals, which is not stealing anyways, it's just uh, copying. But anyone, and they caught a couple Chinese doing this, if you copy something which is important, like from a company, you know, uh, especially uh, in the military branch, uh, they'll give you like 25 years now. Okay, so yeah, you, you were you were lucky in that sense too. Also, yeah. so how long how long did you spend in prison? Three years. Three years. Okay, and uh, which 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 uh, institution were you in? 
<laughs> it's known as the BOP, Bureau of Prisons. Now, I was in uh, Eloy, Arizona, south of Arizona. The judge was kind with me and said, well, I'm going to put you in a prison which is close to your home. Not that close, but it was one of the prisons which was close to my house. It was about an hour, an hour and a half away, something like that. I see. I see. And uh, I mean, what? How, how were those three years? What was prison like? Great. I loved it. <laughs> I had a great time. I uh, had a lot of friends there, you know, uh, a lot of respect. Most people are in there for uh, uh, crimes of uh, drugs. 90 mm-hmm. to 95 percent is just drugs. And so when you have a special case like a spy <laughs> case, uh, you know, you're treated with a lot different. Yeah, I suppose you're quite popular as well. You've got an interesting story to tell. Right? <laughs> you know, besides, I helped a lot of prisoners get out. So I did a little um, uh, lawyering, and at the same time, uh, I developed my theory in there, uh, physics. Yeah, yeah, well, I think this is, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we might want to save your, your theory, the, the rope theory, and your, your actual scientific stuff to another time. I'd love to have a chance to discuss that with you if, if you'd like. Sure, sure, sure. We'll yeah, do yeah. it. So, but let's, let's, not, let's not overwhelm uh, people who I think has got quite a lot, we've taken a lot today. So, um I just wanted to go back and just think um, if you had to go back again, uh, would you would you do all of this again? <laughs> I don't think so. Not uh, not what I know today. No way. No. OK. Uh, you, because of the repercussions or because of, 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 of no, what? No, because I have a different way of thinking, uh, you know, and again, it has to do a little bit with my theory. And just briefly, uh, in those days, I believe there was going to be eventually a world government. Uh, like uh, Marx and uh, Lenin and the rest of them uh, suggested that eventually the dictatorship of the proletariat would work its way to a world government. And from there, at some point, government would cease to exist and we would there would be more equality, et cetera, et cetera. Now, a different theory that is we're going extinct and we're going extinct very, very soon. So, yeah, I think this this is somewhat in the right area. So we can we can touch on this. So. So what makes you uh, so sure that we are going to go extinct very, very soon? Oh, no doubt about it in my mind. Uh, I think the global economy cannot continue growing forever, and it's not. And what happens is when it stops growing, uh, it's like someone wrote a book once, say, grow or die. And I think that's essentially that synthesizes what's going to happen. When the world economy reaches a plateau and starts coming down, which I think it's coming down now and maybe not may not pick up to the glorious days before 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, once it reaches a plateau, then at that point, uh, you have more and more unemployment, more people clinging to the government for help, mm-hmm. and uh, fewer people who work who maintain those who don't work. And mm-hmm. you can't continue having more and more people unemployed and fewer fewer people employed. Mm-hmm. At some point, the system crashes. And what do I mean by that? I mean that money is no more. Money ceases to be because you give a guy a salary, a proletarian, and Mm -hmm. he can't make it to the end of the month with that money. So Mm -hmm. money is no good anymore in that sense because it's devalued to a point where there's no real real wages. I see. I see. Okay. So when it collapses, obviously no one produces food because the only reason uh, corporations produce and distribute food is because of money. And if money disappears or ceases to be or, you know, has no value anymore, well, nobody will want money. People will want something else. They'll want food. <laughs> yes, they want, want tangible things, right. Okay. Especially food. Uh, you know, computers, we can live without 
uh, cars, uh, airplanes. We can live without all that, but we can't live without food. And so why do you think food production um, would collapse because of, of, of money collapsing? Because if money collapses, why would a corporation produce food? Why would a corporation distribute food if money is no more? Mm. What, what's, what's the incentive for a company to produce and distribute if they're not going to make any profit because money has ceased to be? Mm -hmm. That's the issue. I see. Okay. That's in a nutshell. Okay? In a nutshell, yes. A I, I think, I think we'll, we'll have to have a full, one, a full discussion on that in the future. Because yeah. I, that does sound interesting, and I think we have to, I'll have to, we'll have to yeah. go into that further in the future. But um, I, I, there's a quote from uh, yourself, actually, that I'd like to uh, repeat to you, just to see, uh, hear your thoughts on that again to yourself. Uh, it's that uh, nationalism is a disease you cure by traveling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, essentially, when you, the more you travel, the more you see that humans are humans everywhere. You know, you get rid of races, you get rid of nationalities, you get rid of all these things that humans have created and you start seeing the world like it is. And you'll find all kinds of people in every country in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it's not like, oh, uh, if you're from Argentina or you're from Nigeria or you're from Russia, you have this personality. This is how you are. No, you have all kinds of people everywhere. You know, and uh, so you become a little more cosmopolitan, you know, worldly, and uh, you know, nationalism ceases to to have uh, importance. You know, mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, worldview. Brainwashed to you know, when I was a kid, I was told to look at the flag, you know, and that's my flag, and I have to sing the national anthem and so on, and root for Messi, you know, <laughs> and, and then. And then uh, when I go to the United States, they say, OK, now you're in the United States. You got to look at the flag there. And you got to see the Pledge of Allegiance, <laughs> sing the national anthem. You know, and it's like, you know, you, you see uh, everybody doing uh, these things in different countries and everybody does it. <laughs> right, right. And everyone's in their own little box there. Everyone's everyone's um, lost in their own world and, and singing to their own flag. Yeah, I suppose yeah. That, that would make sense. And, and, and yes, getting getting rid of that sort of small mindedness would be beneficial i think yeah yeah people if people traveled more uh they they would talk less nonsense that's yeah that's it that's it <laughs> okay well bill it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you uh, Is uh i would uh, i would love to have another conversation with you about the rope theory and as well as your your predictions on 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 food production and the end of the world <laughs> so, yeah, yeah yeah uh so thank you very much bill well, same here. And uh, over and out, I hope you can get some sleep tonight. No, I will. Yeah, yeah. Uh is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.